Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. This week's episode is the annual ATP Top 10 Prediction, where we will get all of our ducks in a row and talk about what to expect over the course of the next 11 months. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you had a great holiday. A happy new tennis season. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, I always kind of look forward to this show and kind of don't. The part of me that that dreads this is, is creating this is excruciating. And last year was, I said it, the toughest year I ever had to do this. And I explained why. And uh, this year, what I've realized is it's not about to get any better. Uh, we are in an era of men's tennis that uh, I think is really, really special right now. There is a traffic jam of youth, a, an absolute traffic jam. The top 12 is all pretty much 26 years old or under. And then you have Djokovic and Nadal. So you have a bunch of players who are either pre-prime or entering their prime or in a lot of ways in their prime. And then you have two goats. Everybody's in ascendancy. Nobody's in descendancy. And that is what's so exciting, or I should say nobody's in decline. That is what is so exciting about this current era, uh, this couple years that we are about to experience in men's tennis. And uh, hopefully this year we won't have some of the the rockiness of, of last year with uh, what happened in Australia with the, at the time, world number one Djokovic, what happened at Wimbledon with uh, the Russian and Belarusian ban. Uh, let's have a smooth year here and see how this plays out. I can't wait. Before I get to the 2023 prediction. We got to revisit last year. Let's take a look at what I did. Let's take a look at how I did. Uh, and I always name this segment, How Wrong Was Gil? Because you have a, a better chance of getting struck by lightning than actually getting this uh, fully correct. Uh, but ever since I've done this, I don't think that I've ever fully embarrassed myself. And I think this year is uh, another year where uh, I feel all right about how I did. Uh, let's take a look at where I hit and where I missed. Uh, I had Felix Soje Aliasim finishing at number 10, and uh, he exceeded that prediction really with what he did after the U.S. Open because post-U.S. Open, he was sitting at 13 in the world. Number 10 was looking like a pretty good prediction, but he went on an absolute tear and finished the season at number 6. Kasper Ruud, I had at number 9. Uh, Ruud made two major finals last year. There's no way I saw that coming, and Rude ended up finishing at number three in the world. Sinner, I had at number eight, and Yannick had what felt like a good season. We'll get we'll talk about him more a little bit later, as we as we will for most of these guys. Uh, but Sinner actually finished 2022 at 15 in the world, even though it felt like a season where his ranking didn't reflect uh, really how well he played. Alcaraz. 
I predicted to finish number seven in the world, and it's so funny because a lot of people thought I had predicted Alcaraz way too high. He came into the year at 29, so I was predicting a huge jump for Alcaraz. Obviously, he had a, a historical and generational season and finished uh, year-end number one. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like I... I did as well as I could have really done with my Alcaraz prediction because I was super high on him. Uh, Matteo Berrettini, I predicted at number six. I I regret that looking back. I, I thought, you know, I, I really shouldn't have predicted him that high. With that said, it was really injuries that kind of destroyed his season for the most part. When he played, he actually did pretty darn well. Australian Open semifinal, couldn't play Wimbledon. Uh, couldn't play Roland Garros. Um, so, you know, it was a tough year uh, for Berrettini. Couldn't play Paris Masters. Couldn't play, uh, well, that doesn't matter. I was going to say Davis Cup. That wouldn't have mattered here. All right. Um, so Berrettini, I missed the mark on him uh, because he fell out of the top 10. Uh, Nadal, I had at number five because I thought he was going to start the year really slow with the health issues. And I was very worried about the foot. And guess what? I was right about my reasoning that Nadal was going to have some health issues. The foot was a concern, but he played so incredibly well when he was healthy that he exceeded my prediction and finished at number two in the world. At number four, I had Stefano Tsitsipas. That is the one that I nailed. I got him correct for the second year in a row. I predicted Tsitsipas to finish number four two years in a row, and I've been right two years in a row. Um, Zverev, I predicted at number three, and that was looking pretty good. He got as high as number two, and then I think he was, he was either, I think he was three in the world, maybe four in the world at Roland Garros, um, when he destroyed his ankle playing Nadal in the semifinal. That was looking like it was on the money until the injury. So he ended up falling out of the top 10. Djokovic, I had at number two. Uh, he ended up being number five. Remember at the time, I thought Djokovic was going to play Australia. Everybody did. Nobody nobody could have foreseen what would end up happening. So Djokovic finishes number five. Um, you know, it was a wacky season for, for Novak. And Medvedev, that was my biggest miss. At the end of the day, my biggest miss here was predicting... Daniil Medvedev to finish world number one. And he had a, a, a bad season by his standards that I did not foresee. He ends up finishing number seven in the world. And it's a little bit strange going into this 2023 to see a seven next to the name of Daniil Medvedev. Uh, so just looking at it, the, the crazy predicament that I was in last year was who is going to drop out of the top 10? I don't think Nadal will. I don't think Djokovic will. And everybody else is young. So how is this going to play out? And it turned out that injury, more than anything, played a, a really big part in the two players who are young uh, but fell out of the top 10. Zverev uh, and Berrettini, who just didn't play enough last year. And then the one that is just funky is Sinner because Sinner was at 10 in the world, ends up going backwards. But if you look at his win percentage, he actually improved. Very strange thing, 
The problem with Sinner was he didn't really win titles. He only won one title. Uh, back in 2021, he won four titles. So even though week in, week out, he played consistent tennis, he had some big wins. He played well at the majors. You know, he made quarterfinals. He just wasn't finishing those runs. And that's why Sinner fell out of the top 10. So all in all, uh, just interesting to look back on where I was last year, what I expected coming into the season, and what ended up happening. Full disclosure, I forgot to say this in the original recording. Shout out to the three guys who ended up making the top 10, who I did not have making the top 10. That would be Taylor Fritz, Hubert Hercoc, and Andre Rublev. Now, Rublev and Hercoc, I gave them both honorable mentions. So they were both guys who I was like, eh, I want to pick you in the top 10. You just didn't quite get there. Uh, Taylor Fritz wasn't really on my radar at all. So those three uh, deserve a shout out. Let's do it all over again. 2023 top 10 predictions, but we start with honorable mentions. The players who I definitely considered. I thought about them as top 10 players, and they just didn't quite make the cut. Dominic Team, the former world number three who wins the U.S. Open in 2020, doesn't look quite the same after that triumph, and then suffers this horrific wrist injury. I also had him as an honorable mention last year, and frankly, he didn't really live up to it, didn't really deserve it in hindsight, uh, because he didn't really come anywhere near the the top 10 in, in 2022. His current ranking is 102 in the world, uh, but he did start to play some really good tennis relatively at the end of the year, and I still feel like he's a name that you have to consider coming into this next year because we know what he's capable of. And, uh, and because he, he started to show us some, some positive signs at the end of 2022, at the end of the day for team, it, it's all about the forehand. It's the right wrist. The forehand was a top three forehand in the world before he got injured. And it needs to get back to that place in order for him to uh, start knocking on the door again or becoming in the conversation again as a top 10 player. I still think you got to mention him. I don't think he's going to make the top 10, uh, but it's definitely within the realm of possibility. The next honorable mention is Hubert Hurkacz. Now, he is currently the world number 10. I have him falling out of that top 10. Um, last year, he finished 9th, and again, this year, he finished 10th. Uh, but I do think that he improved last year. He just had a more consistent season week to week where 2021, he had some bigger runs. He made some bigger splashes, Wimbledon semifinal, uh, Miami title, but he was very inconsistent. This year, I thought we kind of saw more who Hubert Hercoc is, which is not a bad thing. That said, I'm just, I'm not inspired by the trajectory of his game. Uh, it's another instance where I look at a singular shot, which is the Hubert Hercoc forehand. I'm looking for improvement in that shot, and I'm not really seeing it. And I think it's going to continue to kind of hold him back. And I wonder if he's kind of settling into a role as kind of a top 10 gatekeeper. Someone who is going to kind of hang around between 9 in the world and 15 in the world and is going to have trouble kind of cracking through. Uh, because as a baseliner and as a returner, 
he falls short of most of the guys who I have above him. That being said, the the serve that he brings to the table, it really raises his floor. You know, it makes him consistent in a way. His results at majors are uh, are an area that really can get a lot better, and it's puzzling that there's such a large disparity between Hercotch's results at the Masters 1000s and his results at majors. If you're going to make an argument that Hercotch will stay in the top 10 next year, that's your best argument. You're saying, look, there is no way that Hercotch is going to continue to flop early in majors, uh, given the fact that that just doesn't really seem to be who he is as a player. You look at his results at majors, he's had one good major. And that was Wimbledon 2021. That's that's literally it. He is disappointed at the slams over and over and over and over again other than that, which is pretty strange. So, look, I just look at Hercotch again. At the end of the day, I'm just not inspired by his trajectory right now as a player, um, meaning I don't see him just continuing to get better at a at a fast rate at the moment and that's why I choose other guys above him. Here's where it gets interesting. Next honorable mention, Nick Kyrgios. He played the best tennis of his career in 2022. The rankings don't fully reflect how good he was because he doesn't play on clay and he didn't get rewarded from a ranking standpoint for making the Wimbledon final. So he sits around 20 in the world going into 2023. Uh, the reason he played the best tennis of his life in 2022, I think can be boiled down to two words, fitness and effort. He got in shape and he started to try hard uh, and put in, you know, effort in every single match that he played. He was still a head case, but at least he wasn't ever really tanking throwing in the towel. There were a couple matches, but usually fatigue and uh, injury were a factor in the matches where he kind of wilted when it came from an effort standpoint. For the most part, uh, he cared very much and tried very, very hard, and that allowed his talent to come out. It allowed it to shine. Uh, he finished 2022 with the fourth best win percentage. A lot of metrics like ELO and UTR ratings that take into account level of opponent and how well you play when you do play. Uh, they have Kyrgios as a top 10 player easily right now. And to me, when Nick was healthy and playing last year, he was um, the fourth or fifth best player in the world. So I wanted to put him in the top 10, but there's just too many questions I have about his injury history and how long he can stay motivated and stay on the right track. So this is the kind of prediction. It terrifies me because I think Kyrgios should be a top 10 player. And I think he could be a guy who could be a top five player. He could. I think he could. But I have too many questions still. And that's why I just kind of leave him out over a couple of other players who I just, I know what I'm getting out of them. And I'm more confident that they're going to stay healthy and stay motivated. That's it. Next honorable mention goes to Alexander Zverev. And this is probably 
going to be one of my more controversial predictions because obviously Zverev is a top 10 player, should be a top 10 player. I gave him a ton of respect last year. Uh, I predicted him to finish at number three. And again, I thought that was pretty on the money until the injury. All this is, is understanding and respecting how hard it is to come back from the kind of injury that Zverev suffered. I don't think it should be taken for granted how hard it is to come back from that kind of trauma. Um, and then the fact that he suffered a, a setback, that's a bad sign to me. The fact that he was ready to come back right after the U.S. Open and then he had a different issue in the same part of his body, you know, that bone edema in his foot and ankle area, I just think that that's concerning. And not everyone is the big three that comes back from these long injury layoffs and just hits the ground running. Look at Dominic Team. Uh, you can, a lot of the time, it, it just takes some time to build back the confidence and find the fitness and the level again uh, to, to have success. And I've seen Zverev suffer from confidence issues in the past, and I just don't know how he's going to react to all of this. Six months off the tour and multiple injuries to the same part of his body, it's concerning. And look, we could be sitting here after January, and Zverev has a, a really good month, a really good Australian Open, and this prediction is going to look silly in three, four weeks from now, and we're going to know that I was wrong. I mean, that could happen here, uh, but again, you can't take for granted how hard it is to come back from this kind of thing, and I'm just a little bit worried about Zverev coming into 2023 because of the injury. I do want to give an honorable mention to Matteo Berrettini, who got to a career high number six in the world last year after the Australian Open, and then things kind of fell off for him. Just inconsistent. Uh, really continued to struggle best of three on hard courts. Uh, had an injury. Missed all of clay court season. Uh, hand surgery. Uh, or hand operation. Was it surgery? Anyway, he had some operation on his on his right hand. Um, and then a, a big misfortune for him was that he couldn't get points at Wimbledon. Not only was Wimbledon not offering points, but he got COVID. So, uh you know, it was that was a big blow for him because we all assume he would have done very well at Wimbledon. And then he got had more injuries. So there's a couple things with Berrettini. The first thing is while you could look at his 2022 season and say, oh, Berrettini got unlucky. The fact is, with injuries, it's not bad luck at this point. It's just he's not that durable. He gets hurt a lot. You know, that's just part of the deal with Berrettini. So he's not the kind of guy who I'm going to look at an injury-riddled season and say, oh, that's probably going to go away. That's probably going to stop. Uh, it's not really like a Sinner situation. Like, I think Sinner will probably stop getting hurt because he'll get stronger and mature his body. Uh, but Berrettini is fully developed, so it's not like that. I just think he's injury-prone. Uh, the other thing is... I think he's the same guy. I, I don't think there's any real room for improvement with Berrettini. I actually called one of his matches today, so I kind of cheated with him, and I got kind of an early look at 2023 Berrettini. Not that he would have been in my top 10 like before I called this match, but he's the same guy. 
Like the backhand, it's not getting better. The movement, it's not getting better. And there are so many things I love about his game. His serve, his forehand, his mental. I freaking love his mental game. Um, and the last couple years, that guy has been a top 10 player. It's not that Berrettini's getting worse. I just think everybody got better. So I don't think what Mateo brings to the table is going to be enough anymore to be a top 10 player. And I say that even though there's so many opportunities for Berrettini to gain points next season uh, because, you know, clay court season and and Wimbledon, like if he has a fully healthy year, there's a lot of opportunity there. I just couldn't get Berrettini in my top 10. The final honorable mention is Andre Rublev. It pains me to say this because he proved me wrong last year. I had him falling out of the top 10. I... I, you know, it was close. He was an honorable mention last year too, uh, but I took a lot of heat for it because Rublev was in the top 10 and I said, eh, I think he's going to fall out. And I really didn't want to say that again. I, I really didn't want to make this prediction uh, because the fact is not only do I like him and want to give him respect, I don't want to disrespect Andre, but uh, also there's not a lot of good arguments for him to fall out of the top 10. It's just... There are 10 guys I, I just put above him. Uh, that's it, you know. But what Rublev has done year after year after year, which has made him a top 10 player, and I don't know, maybe I have a bias against this, is he's won a ton of titles, a ton of titles, 11 titles in the last three years. But the thing about how Rublev has won these titles is they, except for Belgrade, 250 Belgrade last year, they've all come in three months. They've come in February, um, January, February, and October. Post-Australian Open, I think one pre-Australian Open, but mostly post-Australian Open, and then post-US Open on the indoor hard courts. And look, like, that counts just the same. But the fact that he has continued to struggle in a lot of ways, middle of the season, sunshine double to U.S. Open. I I wonder if he's going to continue to be able to sustain his position in the top 10 unless something changes there. Like, is he going to be able to continue to absolutely dominate and win like every 250-500 final that he plays in those three months of the year? Uh, because right now, like, that's how he's staying in the top 10 these last two years. Um, now, look, a couple things. First of all, there is room for improvement. If he gets his second serve better, he's going to be a top 10 player. If he's just able to do that, I have no doubt about it. Uh, but I haven't seen that yet. The second thing is he's getting himself in these big matches. Major quarterfinals. Um... Masters 1000 finals like the one he got in, you know, Cincinnati this year. He's getting himself in these big matches. He needs to perform ATP uh, year-end championship semifinal this year, right? He's getting himself in these matches. He's not playing his best in these matches. Can he start to play his best? So, look, Rublev, do I... Is there any reason why he's not just going to keep doing the same thing and stay in the top 10, dominating these, these hardcore events, 250s, 500s? Look, no, there's not a good reason for that. But because of the way he's constructed his top 10 standings, I, I just, 
I favor a couple of other guys who I think have a better chance to make explosive runs at big tournaments. Top 10 time, and at number 10, it is one Taylor Fritz. I look at Fritz and Rublev as very similar players. They play a similar brand of tennis. I know it looks a little bit different in terms of how they produce that tennis, but the style is similar, and I like Fritz's serve, and I like Fritz in in these big matches. He's he's just a little bit more. Uh, he's been a little bit more confident, and he's performed better. Um, and he's been more explosive against the very best in the world in big matches. So that's kind of the tiebreaker there. Um, I feel like, you know, Rublev has been a better player than Fritz for the last couple of years. I mean, 2019, 2020, 2021, Rublev is clearly better than Fritz. I just feel like in 2022, Fritz caught up to Andre. And, and that's just kind of what happened there. Um, he's played a top 10 level. You know, from January to the end of the season, to the ATP Finals, he had a full season. And uh, I think from a rankings perspective, I do have him dropping down one spot from number 9 to number 10 uh, because I don't think he wins another Masters 1000 title like he did at Indian Wells. But on the flip side, Taylor Fritz had two injuries. He had a foot injury. He missed almost all of uh, of clay court season. He played Monte Carlo, and then he didn't play again until Roland Garros. He missed two clay court masters. And then he uh, was in a walking boot after Wimbledon and couldn't really hit the ground running for the North American hard court season. He wasn't fit uh, to start that year. And then he suffered a really weird loss at the U.S. Open uh, to, to Brandon Holt. So there's a lot of areas where you look at Taylor Fritz, a guy who finished this year number nine. This was not a season where everything went right for Taylor Fritz. And as I do this activity, that's the kind of thing I look for um, is, all right, we have a body of work in 2022. Do I expect that to get better? Do I expect that to get worse? I, I see very little reason why Taylor Fritz doesn't replicate in a lot of ways what he did uh, last year uh, going into next year. Now, do I think that there's a ton of room in his game for improvement? Uh, I don't. I actually don't. And I know that might sound like an insult. It really isn't. It's a complete compliment to Taylor Fritz that I think he has been an absolute uh, a workhorse and he's been able to show the the dedication and invest in in the right people the you know really really good coaches and I, I think he's come very close to maximizing his abilities I see him as a talent maximizer uh, so I like him to kind of settle into this borderline kind of top 10 status but in this case I have him finishing 2023 at number 10 in the world. At number nine is a man who had an incredible end to the 2022 season, and that is Holger Runa. By far, among all these guys, the toughest to predict because the sample size is tiny. For about six weeks there, Runa looked like a top five player in the world. Anyone who watched could see that. The results speak for themselves. Now we have to go into next season and kind of we're left to wonder, is that what we're going to see next season? Is, is that the guy? 
Uh, and it, it's really difficult to, to figure that out because, again, the sample size is so tiny and it's kind of a, a weird part of the year. But let's compare him with Carlos Alcaraz, who uh, last year I predicted uh, to finish at number seven. And, you know, now the question becomes, is Runa going to do something similar? Is it going to be the same kind of thing? And, you know, compared to Alcaraz, uh, I am equally impressed with Runa's ground game. I'm less impressed with his movement, but I'm more impressed with his serve. Runa's season, to me, hinges on a few things. How does he handle pressure and expectation? And uh, how do top players game plan for him as he becomes a well-known entity? He's not going to be able to catch anybody by surprise anymore. He's going to have a big target on his back. And that really wasn't the case last season when, you know, Runa just struck the tour uh, when kind of nobody really was expecting it. Right now, I think he's a future number one. But that doesn't change the fact that he's an inexperienced 19-year-old. So I just don't feel like going crazy with this prediction. And I know most people will have him higher for obvious reasons. He's 19 years old and he's 11 in the world. So based on, you know, trajectory, of course, most people are going to have him higher. But what we saw with Alcaraz last season, it's stuff we generally see once every 15, 20 years. And I just think it would be really unfair to use that as a bar for Runa's success heading into 2023. To expect that again, it's just not what history tells us is likely. So I want to be conservative here. Uh, this is still a really positive prediction for Holger Runa. And I don't think it should be interpreted as anything else. To finish 2023, 20 years old, number nine in the world, is really, really good and impressive. It positions him well for a, for a leap. But more off, uh, you know, more likely than not, this is a season where Runa experiences some bumps in the road. It's not going to be as easy as it was over the course of the indoor hardcore season last season. Uh, does this, you know, scare me? Do I think he could make me look silly and, you know, shoot into the top five? Absolutely. Uh, but I'm just going to go off of what I feel like is what happens to a guy who is a teenager um, and, who you know, who just had a, a huge run at the end of a season on indoor hard courts. I think there's going to be a little bit of coming back down to earth. At number eight is Yannick Sinner. I'm doing it again. I'm predicting Sinner to once and for all not only break into the top 10, but finish the season in Turin, which is his goal. And one of the big surprises to me of 2022 was Sinner missing out on the top 10. But it still, as I mentioned, felt like a good season. I was especially impressed with his match toughness. I think his mental game took a leap. Uh, there were just some issues with fitness. He got injured way too much. He still needs to get stronger and build up his body. I really uh, hope for Sinner's sake that this is a big offseason when it comes to to physicality. And, uh, you know, he. I hope he, he gets stronger and he got stronger uh, over the course of this offseason. 
Uh, that would be that would be huge. He needs to be more durable. Uh, the injuries were a, a really big reason why Sinner didn't live up to kind of his potential in uh, in 2022 in in some ways. Um, you know, but I am confident that the physical stuff is going to come along because compared to what he was a couple of years ago, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean. He is getting better. It's just a process for him. Another thing to watch out for is the serve. There's been a ton of tinkering with the technique. And while the serve has gotten bigger as a result of that tinkering, there's also been some inconsistency. There's been some issues, especially on the second serve. And I feel like this is the season where he just settles in and starts to get into a rhythm with his serve where that shot stops becoming such a such a work in progress and starts to look more like a finished product. I also know that Sinner is working really, really hard on his variety uh, to kind of mix things up, and I think that could give him that extra 5-10% to do a better job of competing with the very best in the world. So, look, I have Sinner at number 8, but if anything, I'm leaning higher for Yannick Sinner. Um Going into 2023, I think there's potential that Sinner explodes for an enormous uh, 2023, but I'll keep the prediction safe and says that he settles into the top 10 and finishes at number eight. Number seven is Felix Ojealiasim. Big 2022 for FAA. I mean, he really did what he needed to do. Uh, in terms of results, obviously winning four titles... Which, I mean, if you said that that was going to happen before the year, you know, you would have signed signed for that easily uh, for, for FAA. Um, and, you know, he did that, I think, by making a leap mentally, becoming more confident in himself and his abilities, making some adjustments on just how he carries himself on court. And then technically speaking, uh, his court position, much more dynamic. And that was something that Uncle Tony really worked on with FAA. Uh, the forehand got much more consistent, just sprays less. There's there's less matches where FAA's forehand turns into a complete liability, which was something that definitely happened uh, pre-2022 for Felix. Um, and the serve plus one dominance, that's not really new, but that's here to stay. And that is why, you know, I don't see Felix dropping out of the top 10 anytime soon. Um, that said, I just don't think he can win big titles on slower surfaces, especially outdoors, until he improves his backhand and improves his play from neutral positions and defensive positions. I still don't think he's an elite baseliner. I still think, you know, FAA will continue to improve, but it's, it's not gonna, I just don't see that kind of tier one breakthrough for Felix in 2023. I just think he kind of holds his position, um, with all of the titles he won and the run he went on after the U.S. Open, I do have his ranking a little bit inflated right now. I don't think number six is really indicative of where he's at right now, um, which is why I have him just taking a baby step back and finishing 2023 uh, at number seven. Because uh, I need to look at FAA's season as a whole. And this is what I want to emphasize with Felix. It would be a huge mistake to take that post-U.S. Open run and, I guess, consider that hard evidence that there's been some kind of permanent breakthrough for Felix. 
History tells us that's just not how it works. Look at his season as a whole. It was a good season, but was it a, a year where he really played like the sixth best player in the world from start to finish? Absolutely not. So I still think that Felix is getting there, and I think he's going to have a good season. I think seven is is good, you know, but I don't think that that post-U.S. Open run is going to really have some sort of continuation into 2022, uh, sorry, 2023, where Felix is a tier one guy. I still see him in that tier two zone. Number six is Stefano Tsitsipas. I, I said it. Uh, he's the one guy that two years in a row I've uh, I've hit the mark on, just predicting him to chill at that number four spot. And this year, with great hesitation, I mean, I don't feel good about this at all. I predict him to fall to number six in the world because uh, I, I have some, some concerns about what we saw last year. Now, the counting stats are good for Tsitsipas. I mean... He he led the tour in wins. He led the tour in wins. Uh, but anybody who looks at his season with a more critical eye and watched it carefully knows that that there were some disappointments, some real disappointments, and it, it felt like a year where Tsitsipas could have ascended, uh, could have made that leap forward, and did not. Uh, he played an insanely busy schedule, which kind of led to his standings, you know, in the rankings and kind of helped him really boost that win total. If you look at his win percentage, it, it isn't nearly as impressive. And he suffered upset defeats at the last three majors of the year. And he won one big title. One, which is fine. You know, that's not a bad, you know, season for Tsitsipas, one big title. The problem is it's the, it's the big title he had already won. You know, it's Monte Carlo again. So, we go into 2023 and still besides the besides the ATP finals uh the one kind of masters that he's won is Monte Carlo he hasn't won another that's a little bit disappointing you know i think if if you said that he'd come out of 2023 and that would still be the case a little bit disappointing uh but most importantly let's talk about what we saw at a TT pass cuz at the end of the day i watched the matches and that's where i have some 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 concerns. Um, his compete level wasn't consistent. And I've never felt like that was an issue for Titi Pass until this year. He's always been a guy who I think, you know, cares deeply about becoming the best in the world and fights like an animal. But I just didn't see that consistently last year. And I'm concerned about his state of mind. Um, and, and his mental game in general, because you look at some of these matches, Kyrgios at Wimbledon, Chorich in the final at Cincinnati, um, Medvedev in Turin. These are matches where he was not good in the head. These are matches where he did not give himself really a chance to compete as at his best because stuff was happening with his box or an opponent getting in his head or for some reason his effort level just dipping at certain points in the match. And, and I, I hate to see that. Uh, so, look, the backhand continues to have some issues. That's on the technical side of things. You know, the backhand defense, the return, the slice, that has not really fixed itself. But I still think that Tsitsipas can get to number three in the world, number two in the world with the backhand issues. 
What I don't think he can do is continue to have the backhand issues and have some of the, these mental problems and not take a step back from number four in the world. Um, so that's why I, I have him going to number six. Here's why it scares me. It scares me because an argument could be made that Tsitsipas had basically as bad a season he could have and still finishes at number four. That's kind of what it feels like. It feels like stuff is going to start to turn in his direction. Stuff is going to start to go right. Um, you know, he's so good at attacking short balls with his forehand and his transition game. His court coverage is so good for his size. Uh, the serve is a weapon. It, there, there's so much to like about his game. And I, I think he can be better than number four in the world. No doubt about it. Uh, but ultimately, I have him taking a little step backwards. Number five, Casper Rude. Very interesting position for Rude. Coming in as the world number three. Now, I will be the first guy to say he's not the third best player in the world. Like Coming into the Australian Open in a couple weeks, he's not the third best player in the world. That ranking is inflated uh, because he was able to take advantage of two great draws at majors and make two major finals. And, you know, all the credit to him... That's not slanderous. Like, that's not a negative. He did what he had to do at the U.S. Open and at Roland Garros and beat everybody who he should beat and made two major finals. But, you know, obviously that's that's huge for his ranking. And I don't see him making two major finals again next season. That's why I have him going down two spots. But, look... Number five in the world, what I'm also trying to communicate here is I think Rude is for real. Like, I think Casper Rude's going to have a really awesome season. And I don't think, like, he's fraudulent at the top of the game right now. Uh, with Casper, what makes me so excited about him coming into next year is very, very simple. I hated Casper Rude's backhand. I could not stand it. And I was very adamant until midway through last year that with that two-hander, Rude was going to have serious issues beating the best players in the world indefinitely for the foreseeable future. I am so impressed with the adjustment that he made on that backhand and the improvement of that shot has me just, again, super, super impressed that I just feel really good about Rude coming into next season because of that alone. We know the serve is great. We know the forehand is great. The movement is really great. Uh, the professionalism, the maturity that, that Rude brings is really, really good. Better than a lot of these guys around him, to be completely honest. So I'm, I'm really high on Rude. You know, he's cut his ranking in half five straight seasons now, which is worthy of enormous praise from Rude. He literally went from 100 to 50 to 25 to to 8 to 3. Those are approximations, right? But like Rude continues to get better and better and better. At some point, that has to go the other way. That has to end. Uh, but like Rude is getting better and better. And while his ranking is inflated, I still think he becomes a better player next year and uh, finishes at number 5. At number four, Daniil Medvedev. I think a lot of people are going to disagree with me here. 
if I'm reading the tea leaves correctly. Because right now, Medvedev's stock is low. I mean, Medvedev is a stock down guy in 2022. There's no doubt about that. And and he was my biggest miss last year in this prediction video where I thought he'd finish year-end number one. But to me, this is a clear bounce-back spot for Medvedev. This is where he bounces back and, and has a decent season. It was just Murphy's Law for Medvedev in 2022. Everything that can go wrong did go wrong for Daniil. He had a scarring loss in a major final. He had a, an injury, the hernia, that was bad. Uh, he had geopolitical distractions because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Maybe that was a non-factor. Maybe it was a factor. Impossible to know. Um, and then, you know, there was the fact that he kind of became world number one without really earning it. And I, I don't think that put him in a good state of mind. Now, those things, it's bound to be smoother in 2023. Those things are going to smooth out. However, not everything is going to smooth out. There are some things that I don't anticipate getting better. First off, everybody plays him really smart now. They know how to attack his return of serve strategy. They know he prefers to counterattack, doesn't love to create his own pace. And when it comes to Neil Medvedev now compared to 2019, 2020, guys, especially the best players in the world who have the skills to execute these game plans, guys are coming in and playing him really, really smart to attack his unique style and particularly and specifically to attack his weaknesses. And that is not going to change. That is the reality for Daniil Medvedev from this point forward until he retires. And I don't see a lot of these weaknesses getting better for Medvedev. But, you know, and, and all right. So that's how I have him kind of reaching that middle ground. I don't think he's ever going to get to number one in the world again. To be completely honest, I'm not saying he can't, but gun to my head, does Medvedev get to number one again? I'm going to say no uh, because of some of the weaknesses in his game and, you know, some players just getting better that I just think are going to be better than Medvedev in the next, you know, five, seven years. But do I think he's really the seventh best player in the world, like his ranking shows right now? I just don't. I just don't. So that's why I have him kind of in that middle ground and finishing number four, which would be good. It's a bounce back spot for him. It's going to be a better year. It's going to be a better year for Medvedev, in my opinion. Number three is Rafael Nadal. I don't know why I'm sensing some pessimism about Nadal. You know, I take it back. I do know why I'm sensing some pessimism about Nadal. Because he didn't look good or play good tennis on the indoor hard courts at the end of last year. So, all right, I get that. I found that to be fully predictable and absolutely irrelevant. Like, that is my honest opinion of Nadal losing to Tommy Paul at the Paris Masters and losing two out of his three matches at the ATP Finals. Those are tough players, undercooked, under-practiced Nadal on low-bouncing courts, coming off of an injury. I mean, it's a disaster situation for Rafa. And yeah, he looked bad and played bad. Guess what? That is not my concern 
heading into next year. In fact, I'm pretty optimistic, and here is why. We are coming off of a season that from the Australian Open to Wimbledon, Nadal was as good as anyone. I wish we got Nadal Djokovic at Wimbledon. Man, I wish we got that. But, um, you know, you could either say from... You could either say that from Australian Open to Roland Garros, Nadal was the best in the world, or you could say from Australian Open until the injury at Wimbledon, because um, we just didn't get the Nadal-Djokovic match at Wimbledon. I wish we got it. Um, regardless, we saw an unbelievable level from him. But it was also really, really scary, because you had the foot thing. This awful like foot injury that Nadal has had his whole life and, you know, kind of popped up and flared up, it looked like it might end his career. That's what it looked like. Rome, Roland Garros with the injections, going into Wimbledon, not knowing what it was going to be like. That's It was looking like that might be the end. And the fact that we went through the rest of the season, and yes, Nadal had an ab injury um, that completely wasn't healed for the record at the U.S. Open and at Cincinnati. It just wasn't. If you have a brain and eyes, you know that it wasn't healed. So again, I'm just not concerned. I'm not concerned that he didn't look good in New York. I'm not concerned that he lost to Francis Tiafo. Uh, the, the reason I'm optimistic is because the level that he showed in the first half of the season and then the fact that his foot has been sorted, the fact that that was solved. While, you know, yes, other physical things happened. That is the most important one because we know the ab's going to heal, and it already did. So, 2023, healthy foot Nadal, after the tennis that he played in the first half, I don't see where you can be pessimistic. At number two is Carlos Alcaraz. I said very early on last year that Carlitos is a generational talent. And the closest thing to the big three that we've seen. And he already has his major. And a year-end number one to show for it. Which is incredible. And I think a really good thing for his development. As he just kind of has that off of his shoulders. That's kind of a weight and a pressure. That a lot of young players of his caliber have to deal with. And the longer you go without winning that major especially. Uh, the more that pressure kind of builds. Man. Man, 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 he's in such a good position. Um, he's the best mover on tour. He has huge power everywhere. He has every shot you need. He has an A-plus attitude. Uh, there's so much to be excited about. The question is for Alcaraz, what is next? What what has he done in this offseason to improve himself? Because last offseason, it was very, very clear and focused where he wanted to get strong. And he did that. He got really, really, he, he became a beast. He became a physical beast in the offseason. Well, so now he's already a physical beast. What was this offseason about? And what did him and Juan Carlos Ferrero do to take that next step? Uh, the serve has a ton of room for improvement. The, uh, the nerve management continues to kind of maybe be a, a thing that they have talked about, although he kind of sorted it out at the U.S. Open, but I, I thought that was the biggest issue from Madrid 
until the U.S. Open was he would just get nervous in these big spots and not play as well when he had kind of opportunities in, you know, in clutch situations. Um, and then, you know, the aggressive approach seems a little bit rigid at times. And on off days, the unforced error count can really climb quickly off of either wing, which can sometimes can sometimes result in Alcaraz playing down to lesser opponents. So I don't know what it's going to be. But if Alcaraz starts serving really well, learns to pick his spots to be patient, he's going to be number one. But I think it's going to take another year to do that. Another year or two to really fine-tune and hone those things in. And that is why I don't have him repeating as year-end number one. Um, and obviously, you have the guy who I do have as number one. Um, he's going to be able to play a full season. Number one is Novak Djokovic. It's crazy how good Djokovic was from Rome forward. Absolutely unequivocally the best player in the world. Winning most of the events he played. I'm so impressed with the Wimbledon title last year. He, he needed Wimbledon. He needed it. And he got it. Um, I think that kind of showed that Djokovic's mentality and his ability to soak up pressure remains impregnable, remains the best, probably the best I've ever seen, the best the sport has ever seen. And then after the U.S. Open, you know, he kind of needed to show himself and the locker room that he's still the best in the world, and he totally did that. So he comes into January locked and loaded, tons of motivation, chip on the shoulder, and what enables Djokovic to continue to be excellent and to continue to compete for every single major and year-end number one is the miraculous preservation of his body. That's the first thing. The second thing is the continued development of his first serve and his forehand as a point-shortening weapon. You know, the little wrinkles in his game uh, that he has learned to use so well. You know, the net play, the drop shot, all of that stuff has just gotten better and better. And Djokovic has become uh, really an unbelievably difficult player to win or to beat on, um, on first serve return. I mean, it's very—he's become a machine— on uh, with his first serve and his early aggression behind his first serve, uh, which has been a huge development for him. So, Novak Djokovic right now is uh, is really really well positioned, and again, it doesn't hurt that there's still nobody who soaks up pressure in a huge match better than Novak. So, I think a big 2023 for Novak Djokovic and a year end number one. Let's see how this all plays out. Can't wait for the season. Uh, can't wait for all of the things that we will be bringing you on the channel for this 2023 season. Uh, appreciate everyone who uh, has watched to this point. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time.